Welcome to today's Hubbard and O'Brien Economics Podcast. We're recording this one on Friday, April 9th, 2021. I'm Tony O'Brien. I'm a professor of economics at Lehigh University. Joining me as always is Glenn Hubbard, who's professor of finance and economics at Columbia University. Glenn, how are you today? I'm great. Thanks, Tony. How are you? Doing very well, thanks. Our plan today is to discuss fiscal policy. So as you know, Glenn, we, we've had three big rounds of fiscal policy, mostly in the form of increased federal government spending during the past 13 months. And maybe we'll do a quick review for listeners and then um, we can talk about these actions. So the first one, of course, was back in March, 2020, at the beginning of the pandemic, it was the CARES Act. And we actually discussed that one at some length in previous podcasts. Total spending from the CARES Act was about $1.9 trillion, including direct checks sent to individuals, extensions of unemployment insurance, and payments to businesses to maintain workers on their payrolls under the Paycheck Protection Plan. In December 2020, we had another bill passed. It, it didn't have a snazzy name. It's usually referred to just as the Consolidated Appropriations Act of 2020. And that was another 900, uh, $915 billion in spending, including additional checks sent to individuals. And then most recently, last month, we had the American Rescue Plan. That had a total of about $1.9 trillion in spending. And again, included uh, checks to individuals, extensions of unemployment insurance payments, and more money for the Paycheck Protection Plan. So that's a total of about $4.5 trillion in federal government spending in response to the COVID-19 pandemic. And maybe just to, to gauge how much that is, because when we start talking trillions, a lot of times it's hard to figure out uh, how much you're really talking about. But so that's 4.5 trillion in those three bills over the past 13 months. If you go back to 2019, obviously the, the last year before the pandemic, the federal government spent a total of about 4.8 trillion on everything. National defense, social security, Medicare, Medicaid, medical research, salaries of FBI agents, whatever. So the 4.5 trillion was about 95% of that. So we've come close to spending twice as much, the federal government has come close to spending twice as much in the last 13 months as it might otherwise have done. So what do you think of these fiscal policy actions, Glenn? Was too much spent, too little spent? Was it just about right? Was it spent on the right things? Should we have spent the money on other things? Wow, great questions, Tony. I, I think the answer really depends on the problem you're trying to solve. So First, some good news. The policy actions I think you correctly described are very large, very bold, and very fast. And that's in contrast to what we saw in the great financial crisis, where it took a while for policy to get going. And we had a very long lasting, but very slow recovery from the financial crisis. This time, policy was very much in gear. So whether it was just right too much or too little, I think you could break down into cyclical and structural components. So for cyclical, 
if you look at an old favorite from our textbook or when students take intermediate macroeconomics or money and banking uh, as well, you know, the output gap, the output gap uh, has been vastly exceeded by the spending that we have. So in that sense, you, you, you may say to yourself, well, that means it's too much, but not necessarily, even at a cyclical level, because we know there is still a lot of scarring in the labor market. While people have made much, and rightly so, of good news in employment reports, we still have nine to 10 million people who are short a job who had one before and, and we need to do and we need to do much better. There is, however, a structural issue too. If, if part of this is an economy that's adjusting, that is finding a new job, maybe in a new industry, or maybe some kinds of businesses will be much more important now than were before and others less, that doesn't really call for just quote stimulus or sending checks that may call for more support for uh, training of individuals, maybe for further support of transition for businesses. We're not seeing a lot of that. So I think the scope may be, uh, may be not, exactly, uh, not exactly right. We are seeing abundant fiscal support for the vaccine rollout, which strikes me as a, as a good thing. Uh, I do worry about the most recent proposals whether they really are infrastructure. And I know we can, we can talk about that more. But to me, the bottom line is I still see the labor market as a worry. And I see structural adjustment of businesses, of individuals as a worry. So I don't think fiscal policy is done, but I do think we're spending a lot of money. If you had asked me a few years ago about spending plans like this, I think you'd be making it up. We're very much there now. Those are very good points. I, I think particularly your point about how quickly the response took place, because one of the things we talk about in the textbook when we discuss fiscal and monetary policy is we say, well, monetary policy can respond very quickly and typically does just for institutional reasons that monetary policy is in the hands of the Federal Open Market Committee and they can meet essentially whenever they want and they can begin to reduce the target for the federal funds rate, say, or increase their bond purchases or whatever, basically from one day to the next, whereas Congress and the president have to get together, they have to hammer out uh, a law, there has to be um, uh, enough votes to get it through Congress and so on. And in the past, that often was a long drawn out process. We use, I think in the book, the classic example of President Kennedy deciding in 1962 that the US economy could really uh, benefit from tax cuts that ended up not being passed. The legislation wasn't passed until 1964. So that's an example of a long lag in fiscal policy. But this time around, we've had a very rapid response. I thought you also made a good point, and it's one that we talk about in the textbook, maybe we can do a little advertising and say that we have an updated version of the principles book, particularly the macro chapters in process and uh, instructors may want to uh, check with their local Pearson reps in the next few months to see when it'd be available to them. But we talk about the fact that this was a very unusual recession in that it was not just an aggregate demand shock, which is what we're used to and 
um, what happened during the financial crisis in 2007, 2009, but was an aggregate supply shock. So that it wasn't just a failure of spending, but also the fact that certain businesses just couldn't operate. That if you ran a restaurant, it wasn't that people no longer wanted to eat there, it was that you had to be closed uh, in order to stop the spread of the pandemic. And as you point out, it's not really just that once everyone is vaccinated, we hope we can go back to, to normal life that will necessarily have that same mix of industries and job categories as we had before we went into it, that we've had things such as Zoom that we're using right now to record this podcast. And we don't know to what extent some of these technological changes will result in um, people changing what they do, for instance, working more from home. And does what implications does that have for office buildings and people who depend on office buildings? And are people going to be willing to go into bars and restaurants and be shoulder to shoulder with people even after they've been vaccinated? Uh, we don't exactly know about that. You also raised the point, and I know that um, a lot of students and instructors are interested in this, and that is with such a large increase in government spending, we've also had a large increase in government debt because, of course, the federal government can pay for what it spends with taxes, or if it doesn't have sufficient tax revenue to pay for its spending, it can borrow. And we know that the federal government has been borrowing a lot. And it does that, of course, by having the U.S. Treasury issue Treasury bills, Treasury notes, Treasury bonds. And they've been doing a lot of that. So the total amount of Treasury debt outstanding, meaning it's still out there and the Treasury is paying interest on it, is called the federal government debt or the national debt. And we can look at what's happened to it and what is likely to happen to it in the future. And, and again, in the updated version of our book, we have discussion of this and some figures that show the projections of debt. So again, as a, as a way of sort of gauging how large debt is, we often measure it as a percentage of GDP. So if you, if you do that, then the record debt for the United States came during World War II, right? Where obviously we had an enormous amount of uh, spending because we were gonna buy whatever planes, tanks, ships we needed to, to win the war. So right after World War II in 1946, Federal government's debt was about 106% of GDP. So it was a bit larger than the value of GDP that year. Thereafter, it shrank, not really because we were paying off the debt, although some of that happened, but because GDP increased faster than the debt. So it fell down to about 20, 25%. But in recent years, it's been going the other way and now with the three spending bills we just talked about, it's going to increase more rapidly than it ever has before. So if you look at the Congressional Budget Office, right, they're kind of the scorekeepers of this stuff, and they have their forecasts that essentially show the debt rising as a ratio of GDP pretty much as far as the eye can see. And for them, that's 30 years uh, out to 2051, where they have it by that point uh, reaching more than 200% of GDP. And there are some people who think that um, the Congressional Budget Office forecasts are actually conservative in the sense that they're 
certain technical reasons that we won't go into where sometimes they have to um, uh, give estimates that are, are below what is likely to happen. But at any rate, what that indicates is that we are gonna have twice as much debt relative to GDP than we've ever had in the history of the country, even during wartime. So the question I get asked, and I'm sure you do as well, is should we worry about that? Uh, is that a problem that we're sort of going into uncharted waters, piling up more debt than we ever have before? Well, I think we should think hard about it, Tony. You raise many, many good points. You know, in economics, we often remind students to be careful about the difference between stocks and flows. And so when we talk about debt to GDP, there we go again, that's a stock and a flow. GDP is a flow and, and debt is a stock. And so one way to ask the question might be, if you compare a flow to a flow, what's the debt service cost? Uh, the problem with that comparison and why I'm a little bit worried is interest rates are very low now. And so you could say the debt service on even this much larger debt is still not a very large number relative to GDP. But what if interest rates rose, uh, either because an economic recovery pushes up the real interest rate or inflation returns to more the Federal Reserve's target level of 2% or perhaps a bit higher. So to be concrete, the 10-year Treasury, last time I checked, was around, I don't know, 1.7% or so. If the real interest rate were even zero, and the inflation target of 2% were anchored, that's further movement up in rates. It wouldn't take much uh, to move rates beyond that, really raising budget questions. But perhaps the biggest question of all for the debt is are we spending money on the right things? Are we spending money on things that might also add to our future productivity and capacity to produce and unfortunately, that's not a conversation we're having much in Washington from either political party. Yeah, I think you make an excellent point on looking at the interest payments that have to be made on the debt, because currently they don't seem to be pinching the federal budget. But I was looking up this morning the mix of debt that the Treasury has issued. And again, they issue bills, which mature or paid off in a year, and notes, which are paid off from two to 10 years and then bonds that are not paid off for 30 years. And about, if you take the total amount of federal government debt, national debt held privately, meaning not held by agencies of the federal government, then about 40% of it will mature in one year or less, right? So it's either bills or notes and bonds that are about to mature. And about 75% of it will mature in five years or less. So there's this kind of tension that it turns out if you look at the long run, it's cheaper to fund the debt by issuing a lot of bills because as we talk about in the book and we go into in great depth in, in the money banking text, short-term interest rates are almost always lower than long-term interest rates. So if you're a borrower and you can borrow short-term, you're better off over the long run. But it does expose you to risk, sometimes called a refunding risk, which is to say that as you pay off that short-term debt, if you have to issue new debt, so the treasury pays off bills, has to issue new bills. And as you point out, interest rates have been very low 
uh, in part because inflation has been very low. But if inflation were to take off, we know that nominal interest rates rise with inflation because, of course, borrowers and lenders, including people who want to invest in treasury securities, are interested in the real interest rate. What do you have left after inflation? And so if inflation were to tick up, we'd expect that interest rates would tick up. And it wasn't that long ago, um, basically just before the financial crisis, where on 10-year treasuries and 30-year treasuries, we were seeing four, five, 6% interest rates, unlike the, you know, as you mentioned, one and a half to 2% that we're seeing right now. So if we were to return to those level of interest rates, either, as you mentioned, because of inflation or because the economy expands very rapidly and real interest rates go up, then interest becomes a much bigger part of the federal government's budget. And that puts Congress and the president in a tough position, right? Because they either have to spend less on other things so that they can um, allocate more money towards interest payments, or they have to raise taxes or they have to issue more debt, right? And of course, then you get into the cycle of your issuing more debt in part to pay the interest rate on the debt you currently have. So it, it, it's an interesting situation. And um, the part that uh, I find fascinating is we really are getting into uh, uncharted waters here in the sense that we haven't really seen this amount of debt relative to GDP literally in the history of the country. Um, maybe we can go on talking about spending and debt because the um, debt forecasts from the Congressional Budget Office that I just mentioned do not include the latest round of fiscal uh, policy action or the, the proposed round, the American Jobs Plan, where the Biden administration is expected to introduce uh, what they're calling an infrastructure bill with the the title American Jobs Plan, that will increase federal spending by around $2.3 trillion. So in addition to increasing spending on traditional infrastructure, which we usually think of as things like roads and bridges, ports, things like that, this bill would increase federal spending on home care through the Medicaid program, on affordable housing, on subsidizing electric vehicles, including the, the building of charging stations, public transit, Amtrak, the, the passenger train service, school construction, and some other things. So, um, and the plan will be paid for or partly paid for by a proposal to raise the corporate income tax. The current rate is 21%. It was cut from 35 to 21% in 2017 to raise that back to 28%. So about halfway between where it was and where it is now. And by raising taxes on households making more than $400,000 per year. So Glenn, what do you think? Is this bill needed? Is the spending going to the right places? Are the tax increases to pay for it a good idea? You know, all great questions and, and hard ones. I, I think of the bill, as you well described it, is having two parts. One would be about infrastructure. And I think in the modern economy, we'd probably go beyond 
roads and, and bridges to think about broadband or even some of the R&D components of the bill as being potentially infrastructure. From an economics perspective, I think when we think, well, what's infrastructure? We think of it as being more like investment. So it's going to add to future productivity and, and national wealth. And that piece of it, which actually isn't a very large part of the numbers you mentioned, actually a fairly small part, I would call infrastructure if you use that productivity definition, you could arguably debt finance something like that. It is adding to future productivity to the extent that you wanted to pay for it. Traditionally, we've used things like user fees to pay for infrastructure. That certainly uh, could be the case here. Most of the bill is what I think would be better called social spending, which may or may not be a good idea, but A, wouldn't be productivity enhancing like infrastructure, so B, would need to be paid for. And paid for how? So you mentioned the corporate tax. If the goal of an infrastructure plan is to raise productivity and national wealth, that's what infrastructure would do, the corporate tax would be an odd way to pay for it. You think about the way we talk about the corporate tax and the principles textbook and, and students probably here in a variety of economics classes, you can think of there being several kinds of effects. You know, one would be an effect on investment. Higher corporate taxes all else equal would reduce the profitability of investment, which would reduce the capital stock. That would also reduce productivity and wages. It's also the case that some portion of a corporate tax is probably capitalized into asset values, but that's just a fancy way of saying reduces stock market values, which hits not only well-to-do people who happen to hold a lot of stock, but most people through uh, 401k plans or things that they hold on their own in their IRA uh, accounts. There are other ways to imagine paying for social spending if, if that is indeed what the Congress and the president want to do. I mentioned user fees before on infrastructure to cover part of that cost, but another uh, might be a carbon tax, which would seem to go along with the green infrastructure components of what the administration uh, is, uh, is trying to do. The corporate tax increase is much larger than one might imagine. So one way to think about it, the way it's being described sometimes is the Tax Cut and Jobs Act, the 2017 tax change, took the rate from 35 to 21. So this is going back halfway. Well, let's forgetting a lot of what happened both in 2017 and now. So in the 2017 act, there was also a lot of base broadening and changes in the international tax rules. The same is true in this um, particular uh, bill that uh, President Biden is, is uh, proposing. Particularly in this bill, the tax increases are about $1.8 trillion over 10 years in the corporate tax. That's both from the rates and more importantly, actually in the numbers from the base broadening uh, that is about twice the size of the tax cut that happened in 2017. And you scratch yourself and go, wait a minute, how can that be? Again, the base broadening that happened in 2017. So what we've got going on simply is an infrastructure plan, a social spending plan, and 
very, very large increase in corporate taxation, the Congress will need to look at those things independently and together and come up with its judgment about whether that makes sense. I don't know what you think. I think you make some excellent points there. Um, a number of people have remarked that about the social spending part of it. And there was one aspect of it that, that I thought was very interesting. And this is, um, it's not spelled out very specifically, at least in a way that I could understand, but 400 billion of the 2.3 trillion is going to come, is going to be allocated towards um, spending on home care basically for the disabled and the elderly. And we talked earlier about how the, the structure of the economy might change as a result of the pandemic. And one thing that some people have talked about is, will people be as willing to enter nursing homes? And will people be, families be as willing to consider nursing homes for their uh, elderly parents? Because obviously, uh, uh, tragically, uh, nursing home residents uh, bore the brunt in many ways of the deaths from the pandemic. And so as I understand this program, it's an attempt to increase the amount that uh, Medicaid would pay for people to come into your home and take care of you if you're no longer able to do certain functions or you need some help in, in different ways. It would be a very um, I think a very significant change in how we how we we deal with people who are um, disabled or elderly and unable to care for themselves. It's likely to be a very expensive um, program, um, maybe even more than the four hundred billion dollars that's been allocated, because we know that it's it's very costly to do the sort of in-home care. One of the reasons that we don't do as much of it now is that now there are certain economies of having people in nursing homes or other assisted living facilities that um, you lose, obviously, if people are, are staying in their own homes. Uh, yeah, there, there are certain things that uh, clearly tend to get proposed in these plans and are unlikely to be seen. Uh, I noticed that Amtrak, the passenger rail service, they're, they've um, come out with some tentative maps of how they would uh, expand the service. And sort of parochial interest to me is that there has not been train service from the Lehigh Valley in Pennsylvania into New York City since 1957. Um, but that is one of the routes that they've talked about, um, about building. And I know just from, from local discussions of that in years past that the only tracks that um, connect Lehigh Valley to New York City are entirely devoted to freight and they're pretty much at capacity. So it's one of those things where you could do it, but it might be more expensive. And there's a certain tendency for those kinds of programs to kind of be in initial bills and then in the end not actually being um, not actually being enacted because they turn out to be more expensive than, than was contemplated. Glenn, I think we've had a good discussion of these fiscal policy questions. There are a lot of issues that are raised, and I think we'll likely get back to them in later podcasts. And just another advertisement for our updated principles textbook that many of the things we discussed today are discussed in the updates of that textbook. So let me just remind listeners that our podcast is available on iTunes. You can subscribe and make us part of your podcast feed. 
And please keep checking our blog, our blog at hubbardobrieneconomics.com for new content. You can subscribe to the blog to receive email alerts about new posts. In fact, the email alerts usually contain the whole post. If you have an issue or concern that you'd like us to discuss, we'd really like to hear from you. Just send us an email at hubbardobrieneconomics at gmail.com. Thanks again to everyone for joining us for this conversation. We look forward to connecting with you again on a future Hubbard and O'Brien Economics podcast. We'll see you next time. <laughs>